innovation is not the answer. Can we innovate our way to a sustainable future? Or do we need to rethink our whole economic model? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I am Head of Investment at Joe Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is Professor Tim Benton, who leads the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House, otherwise known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. He has worked with the UK government, the European Union, the G20, the World Economic Forum and Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm glad I got that last one out correctly. Altogether, a very impressive career. Tim, welcome to Organising the Future. Thank you, Andrew. Right, let's start with what one of the critical problems with the current economic model is, and that's the challenge of neoliberalism and how it sort of almost implied a subcontraction of the governance of government to the private sector. Where should we draw the line between the public and private, especially when we're thinking about some of these big systemic issues that you tackle at Chatham House? A good question, Andrew. I think if you think in the round about what are public goods, so examples that spring to mind are uh, a healthy population supported by access to nutritious food, uh, living in an equitable climate, and uh, I've just been looking at Twitter and the hurricane Otis that's just crossing the Mexican coast at the moment, fastest ever intensifying hurricane, went from a storm to grade five, category five hurricane in 24 hours. Absolutely unprecedented. Um, having a natural world that deals with pests and diseases that doesn't lead to outbreaks of things that um, hurt us or hurt our food supply. All of these things are public goods uh, in some way, shape or form. But the trouble with uh, the kind of neoliberal model is obviously that private goods are what people make a profit out of and our economic growth is based on effectively year-on-year uh, -year growth in consumption in some way, shape or form. And year-on-year -year growth in consumption implies an exponential process. And ultimately, we live, on a, we live on a finite planet. And so there is automatically, as Malthus first pointed out, some sort of conflict between how much natural capital we use to fuel our consumption, how long that natural capital will last, and the impacts from exhausting that natural capital or degrading that natural capital on the public goods on, on which we rely. So I think that is the challenge to our current economic growth model is that with a finite planet and effectively the market drives demand, uh, it's not so much supply that drives demand, I think it's the, the market drives demand and the expectation that we all consume more year on year and there are more of us consuming more year on year and whilst we don't have markets that are very tightly regulated, although some might argue with that, we're in the situation where there is always an element of how can we increase productivity, whether labour productivity or uh, reduce costs in some way by externalising costs on the environment. And we're just at that point where actually I can't see an easy way out of the standard model that economic growth has got to continue forever 
if it's based on consumption growth. And no matter how much we love the idea of innovation, and I'm certainly not against innovation, the history of innovation is that it's increased consumption, not decreased consumption, in the sense that, you know, William Stanley Jevons, the Victorian coal economist, first pointed out the Jevons paradox that he said that if you made coal-fired power stations more efficient, you would expect to use less coal. But, of course, you don't because you make power cheaper, so you use more coal in aggregate. And in a sense, that's what innovation is driving a lot of the time, a Jevons paradox writ large. So although the efficiency of production per unit of production is going down, the rate of consumption is often going up. And in aggregate, we end up using more natural resources rather than fewer natural resources. So that's not so much an innovation problem. That is a problem to do with how we regulate our relationship with natural capital and the natural environment. There's another example of the uh, of, of that is the number of lanes on the M25. Increase the number of lanes, traffic doesn't flow any faster. You just get more tra- yeah, more traffic on there. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Before I discovered the Jevons paradox, I used to call it the M25 paradox for <laughs> exactly that reason. But just to challenge that sort of view a little bit is that obviously Malthus wrote a long time ago, and some of his predictions have never really come to pass. And that's what the sort of uh, the pro growth people will always. Uh, roll out that, you know, the last hundred years we've seen, what, a billion people lifted out of extreme poverty, life expectation has increased, you know, we've had more um, female participation in the economy and, um, you know, we've we've actually had quite a lot of progress. Trying to explain to people that that progress has limits and bounds when they haven't got the you know, the evidence in the short term. How do you actually sort of reconcile some of these challenges of getting people to recognise your point? We are on a finite planet with finite resources when it feels like innovation actually has worked in our favour over the last hundred years. Um, Well, the answer is that the bank of natural capital is getting eroded uh, and getting eroded faster than it's ever been. And we're getting down towards overdraft territory where we've never been beforehand. And whilst innovation has uh, slowed the rate of um, consumption of some resources, ultimately we're getting to the point where, as Malthus would have called it, we must at some degree be at carrying capacity. I mean, you see the rate of loss of biodiversity, you know, is reaching critical... um, Uh, conditions in many places and there is the potential for ecosystem collapse in some places. We've got climate change getting absolutely out of control in 2023. We have, um, you know, so many things that are looking like, uh, you know, I trained as an ecologist many years ago, looking like that the world won't be able to support another few decades of what we've done over the last few decades without things breaking. And the th- the the main point I would make as a kind of trained um, systems analyst is that systems behave in complex nonlinear ways. And the issue that we've done it over the last 200 years or whatever since Malthus doesn't mean that we can t- continue to do it for 200 years to come because whilst we are... Uh, perhaps reducing the rate at which we are um, 
approaching the threshold. We're still approaching the, thre- the, the thresholds that are going to be there. And if you think about, I don't know, uh, wild-caught fisheries, what we've done is um, effectively overfished one stock, moved on to the next stock, moved on to the next stock, overfishing each in turn. Critical minerals might be another kind of example of this. You exhaust something with our um, non-circular linear economy, you exhaust a supply, you innovate and find another way to substitute that supply. But in the long run, you've got a finite (laughs) supply and a finite amount of substitution. That innovation can slow that process and let's hope it will slow that process but it doesn't just because you're more efficient at degrading the environment it doesn't mean you're not degrading the environment in absolute terms as i guess it's a bit like uh, filling your bathtub you know uh, you can turn the tap down a bit but if you don't turn it off it's going to overflow just a bit, <laughs> At some point. bit later <laughs> yes. and you know when i travel in in the mornings you know i listen to farmers today i'm not a farmer but i'm just always interested about the stress and the strain in our farming system. You know, it's got you know, 5.45 in the morning. You get to learn quite a lot. And some <laughs> of these issues that you talked about there are actually becoming very real. And I just want to be, you know, I mentioned a whole list of august uh, institutions and governmental or intergovernmental panels that you work in. You know, the, one of the challenges it seems to be and has been brought up in some of the previous conversation is around the political timescale versus the more ecological timescale. And how, how do you sort of find your discussions with the policymakers in, in recognising some of these challenges? Because complex non-linear systems are something that probably goes over the head, I would imagine, of one or two elected officials. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't comment on that, <laughs> Andrew. Um, yeah, it is a difficult situation and... In a sense, we are locked into an economic growth model in a kind of systemic perspective that is really difficult to change because changing the economic growth model, you've got issues to do with power and incumbency, which have been discussed (laughs) since Marx uh, days. You've got issues to do with a just transition. Who will get hurt if we transition to a a low-carbon economy, a sustainable production system for food or whatever it might be, it will inevitably impact upon uh, profits, it will impact upon livelihoods uh, and so on. Um, When I talk to decision makers, there's often relatively little disagreement about a long-term vision that we need to change. Where the issues come in, in is that it's often politically unpalatable to think about changing the rules of the market you know, regulating to ensure uh, uh, environmental degradation, sustainability happens, regulating to ensure that uh, people adopt uh, low-carbon business models and supply chains and uh, people uh, taking citizens on board along with them in the journey to say, actually, we will be better off if we transition, we'll be healthier, there'll be less climate anxiety, less disease emergence, Uh, less supply chain interruptions, you won't get flooded so much, whatever the sort of rain, according to Therese Coffey, uh, over the last 24 hours, um, the world will be a better place. Excuse me, but the issue is, as uh, Macron found with the Gilets Jeunes protests a few years ago, the politics, the political space for significant change isn't there at the moment. Yes, and that sort of uh, gets quite worrying because we've had lots of discussion about quality versus quantity of economic growth, you know, 
Bobby Kennedy famously talked about that back in 1968. I think even I spotted a speech from David Cameron once upon a time <laughs> where he talked about it. But it then gets quickly lost in the short-term expediency of political life. And we've seen that, you know, with, I think, the green you know, the green energy movement in the UK. We've done very well with offshore wind, but the incentives now are being perversely set to disincentivize you know, green energy. So, uh, and I always feel these sorts of things are actually quite strategically important. I think when you and I were doing the preamble, we talked about one of our sort of favourite, you know, strategy reports, you know, the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends Report, and you came out with the, the UK's version. And here you get, you know, people who are paid to think strategically about geopolitical issues and not just the the opportunities with the threats actually talk about climate change. They talk about democratic demographics. They talk about food insecurity. And it's that sort of challenge I always find so frustrating between our short-term political cycles and those longer-term visions that it's, it gets very frustrating to see how we're going to get out of it. Yeah, I agree. It is, it's like pushing a boulder uphill sometimes. But I it's not just political, it's also the power and incumbency of uh, the captains of capitalism in some way, shape or form. And you can see that around the world with the uh, pendulum swinging to the right over the last decade or so, whether it's Trump or Bolsonaro or whatever. It's about uh, enhancing the incumbent's ability to continue to make profits, which is the key political uh, issue and... Uh, it's used as a wedge in libertarian politics that, you know, you're not going to change my ability to do whatever I want to do. I will not sacrifice my private gains for the public goods, etc., etc. So it's not just the short-sightedness of politics. The whole system at the moment is, as I said earlier, is locked in to more or less the status quo and incremental changes, marginal increases in transparency and carbon reporting, etc., rather than the systemic change that we need. But part of that issue, I think, is because we haven't done the right sorts of economic analyses about the costs of not transitioning. So most of the popular discourse is about, oh, well, net zero is going to be too expensive, or I might have to change my car, or I might have to change my eating habits, or whatever it might be. And yet, when you put that against plausible worst-case scenarios, um, then it becomes quite frightening in economic terms what the costs of climate change interacting with geostrategic issues, geopolitics, uh, potential kind of increase in conflict, huge migration flows and all the rest of that. In the long term, if we don't change, our economy will be forced to change. And what I think it would be nice for kind of liberal thinkers or right thinkers, progressive thinkers, to do is to kind of recognise that a standard equilibrium-type economic cost-benefit analysis is not capturing the plausible worst-case scenarios. So if you think about insurance, we all have house insurance, we're forced to have car insurance if we drive, etc., etc., but you don't take out insurance on a cost-benefit analysis 
because otherwise the insurance industry wouldn't make its profits. You take out the cost benefit. You take out insurance on the basis of averting the worst possible case, where all of your assets get lost in a house fire or a, or a flood or something like that. And yet, our standard economic thinking is made, made more on the cost benefit case rather than let's avoid the worst. And just as an example, you know, the Storm Daniel that uh, flooded Derna. Um, uh, in Libya, uh, dropped 750 millimetres of rain in one hour in a village in Greece. 750 millimetres in one day, sorry, 24 hours. 750 millimetres of rain is 7,500 tonnes per hectare. So even a small street, 100 metres long by 10 metres wide, would have uh, 750 tonnes of water on it. In a day, and if you think about a storm like that hitting London, the capital costs of that floods in the underground, all of our inner city um, big buildings with their basements flooded, you know, human costs, etc. And we had a, a, a slight taste of that sort of thing in Brecon over the weekend with the storm Babette. If something like that were to happen to London, the costs would just be enormous. But those are not included in our standard economic thinking about whether it's worth uh, sacrificing some income now and investing in the future. Um, and traditionally, um, the ESG movement is much more about incrementalism and small-scale changes rather than radical transformation. Radical transformation can't be brought about by a single business. Uh, it needs a coalition between government and business for a systemic change to happen, but that needs the political space. And so we're in a bit of a trilemma that neither the politics is there nor the political will is there and uh, the incumbency of industry is also a bit of a break in terms of everybody's making quite a lot of profit now and don't, don't want to put that at um, risk. You mentioned the word disclosure in there. We, we can all feel really com uh, comforted <laughs> that there's a lot of sustainability disclosure. Absolutely. A lot of nice, <laughs> shiny reports that don't always link to action, sadly. Well, most of them are linked to actions, but as, as I say, they're kind of incremental actions. You know, it's about one uh, director of a multinational food company said to me about 10 years ago, he said, oh, well, we like, we like green things. If we make a 10% greenhouse gas saving on a particular line, we might be able to sell 20% more. And, you know, in a sense, that's the Jevons paradox, again, that the absolute emissions from that supply chain are going up, even though the per capita, the per product emissions are going down. As it was like Patagonia with their famous ad, don't buy this Parker, yeah. and sales went up <laughs> significantly in the nine months after it. It's, uh, but this is the problem, isn't it, with, with these complex systems, is it's trying to distill it down to an electorate who might be viewing, look, you know, dealing with the cost of living crisis, um, dealing with the, the, the challenges of uh, you know, just modern life, and they might be worried about climate change, but it tends to get lost in the, in, in the sort of day-to-day. Do we almost need like a, a change, change in social movement that we effectively had after the, the dark days of the 70s? I sadly remember them too well. Uh, and then the 80s, you know, the rise of neoliberalism or, um, actually occurred with a social change. You know, we, we had a changing economic model. 
uh, changing business model, but it was all reinforced ultimately by changing social norms that enabled you know, the economic model to shift. Because it's not imposed as by statute, in effect. It's by sort of uh, common assent. Yeah, uh, well, I think, as I said a little while ago, we need the three constituencies to work together. So citizens to make it sexy enough for politicians to be voted on, according to their ability to change, and then to market actors to continue to make a profit within changing rules of the market. But it won't arise from any one of those working independently. Um, I do think as we effectively, I mean, the, there is a good chance this year we will pass 1.5 degrees as an annual t total um, uh, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial baseline, according to the IPCC Paris uh, uh, pathway, and next year is likely to be hotter. As we go past 1.5 degrees and people's lived experience of climate change, whether it's in floods in Brecon, whether it's in storm surges with Hurricane Otis in Acapulco at the moment, whether it is wildfires in Canada, whether it is El Nino disrupting fragile states in the centre of the world leading to revolutions and civil uh, conflict leading to increased migration, whether it is new diseases like COVID itself probably made more likely by um, climate change. The lived experience of climate change, I think, will affect so many people that the politics of the space is going to change. Um, There's one example I came across a few months ago that one person's house insurance in Miami had gone from $1,500 in one year to $3,000 the next year to $15,000 the year after. So once it gets tangible for the electorate that the costs of climate change are impacting directly on them, I think the kind of notion of net zero, 1.5 degree pathways are very abstract and they're very intangible. And as we've seen in the UK with our... Prime Minister recognizing the, the need to get to net zero, but not re not recognizing it's not the need, it's not reaching net zero. It's effectively the area under the curve until you get to net zero. It's the rate at which you get to net zero. Um, I think those things will become uh, less important, and people will demand more concrete, more immediate, more tangible change on the ground. And that will lead to, I guess, change in the politics, but changing consumption patterns, changes in livelihoods, greater adoption or desire to adopt electric cars. And, you know, some of those other things which have become a bit of a wedge issue in many electorates around the world. You mentioned in a you know, preamble a cost of two to three trillion dollars a year from extreme weather events. Yeah, you know, that's well over the annual GDP of the UK. Um, so you know, we are talking already about events that are ca causing quite a lot of economic cost. And on the IPCC projections, it's only going to go up. And Absolutely. So you know, we're already beginning to see that manifested, which is why I think people people's consciousness about climate change is, shif is shifting because it's all it has a tendency to be oh we've always had bad weather but it's the frequency of the bad weather events that be make a climate 
and as people are beginning to see that more and more in their, da- in their daily lives with a friend staying who lives in the centre of France and how hot and difficult it is living there over the summer months, you know, already that lived experience is changing people's perception. Who... Yeah, and I think it's, it's broader than that because it's not just the lived experience of the event, it's also the lived experience of the uh, uh, what we call cascading effects that come from the event. So from a, if you look at the issues that conservative voters in the UK worry about, the top two are cost of living, inflation and migration. And uh, a lot of the cost of living crisis was sparked by COVID, made more likely by climate change, enhanced by supply chain disruptions, uh, including the war in Ukraine, but not totally caused by the war in Ukraine, uh, and will be impacted by uh, supply chain disruptions. We've got uh, interdiction in supply through the Panama Canal. If the war in the Middle East increases, you've got interdiction in supply in uh, the Suez. If uh, El Nino develops as expected, we might have supply chain disruptions from food production next year. All of those things can come together that it's not just whether or not your home gets flooded or whether or not you experience severe heat. It is what happens in other parts of the world because what happens in other parts of the world doesn't stay in other parts of the world, um, to push that analogy a bit further. There's also the nexus between health and climate. We had Dr Judith Rodan as a guest and she was talking about that and that sort of links neatly to sort of that concept of resilience and I know that's uh, an area that you're you're particularly interested in because as we get these more complex uh, outcomes manifesting themselves more frequently, we're putting ourselves in quite a, a fragile position, aren't we? Because many of our systems are not resilient. You talked about supply chains and just, you know, the war in the Ukraine had a big and very rapid economic impact on a, quite a range of industries in, in Europe. And what's your thinking about the, the, the resilience of the system? Is that, is that where we should be focusing our sort of efforts and our, our, our thinking and trying to persuade people that resilience, but more than growth, is the, the topic of the day? Um, yes, in a sense. Uh, but there are a number of things kind of wrapped up in that question. The first that is that we live in a globally interconnected economic system. So that means, as I said earlier, events somewhere else will impact on us here. We also live in a globally interconnected system that means you can't think of sectoral analyses being independent of other sectors. So prime example, uh, <laughs> this is one I, li- I like to trot out. Before Putin invaded um, Ukraine, energy prices were already going up, partly because of post-COVID uh, economic growth and uh, disruptions. Energy prices were going up. So fertiliser manufacturing plants shut down because energy prices were so great. Carbon dioxide is a side uh, a byproduct of fertiliser production. And so uh, carbon dioxide is then used to cull poultry. So if you remember a couple of years ago, we had uh, worries that we wouldn't have turkeys for Christmas. Now, is that an energy uh, sector issue? Is that a food sector issue? Is the fact that energy prices meant that fertiliser was more expensive? Is that a food sector issue? Is that an energy sector issue? Or is that a systemic issue? And so all of these things are 
deeply, deeply interrelated. And we have developed over the last 40 years effectively a system which maximizes efficiency uh, uh, at the expense of resilience. So all of the things that make resilience, redundancy, diversity, modularity rather than centrality, uh, flexibility, agility, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things have been stripped out in the name of making profit. And that's good, good in a way for profit, but it's not good in a way for the long-term resilience where we see absolutely an increase in volatility that's coming from biodiversity loss from extreme weather and how that interacts, interacts with national security concerns, whether it's supply of critical minerals, whether it's supply of food or whether it's supply of energy, and how those all interact to determine the global market and how it works. And all I can see looking ahead is that our system is immensely dependent on the world being calm, cooperative, and not in conflict and not being hit by a ever bigger hammer, ever harder, like climate change. And we've had a, an example from history not so long ago, the global financial system, which showed that complexity and interconnectedness. And when it breaks, it, can, it worked very well until it didn't. <laughs> until and then didn't. that fragility <laughs> was exposed very rapidly. And I would imagine that the climate and the nexus with all those other events like uh, food, migration, geopolitics uh, adds you know, new degrees of complexity. So you know, it is a sort of quite a, a, a worrying challenge. Um, you know, wh wh where do we go from here? You know, are, you, are you seeing any sort of signs of optimism or, or do you worry that the multilateralism that probably is needed to, to tackle these issues is breaking down? Are we beginning to see... You know, some of the, you know, the big powers look inwards. Is that going to help or hinder some of the, you know, tackling some of these challenges? Well, it might help or it might hinder. Um, ultimately, it's not uh, increasing fragility of the multilateral order has has been the signature of the last decade or so, with the rise of uh, Trump, with Brexit, with trade wars with real conflict in Ukraine and now Middle East with various other impacts. WTO is largely toothless. The UN, you could just see the debate in the Security Council overnight, is not going to create um, the situations where there is uh, any anything close to global unanimity on the way that sovereign states should work together to change this. So inward-looking nationalism does disrupt the system and inherently breaks the lock-ins that enable the, the, the system which is incredibly fragile, so not resilient in the way it functions, but incredibly resilient in terms of the power and incumbency that allows it to bounce back immediately to how it was beforehand. So uh, the breakdown of multilateralism, if that intensifies, will inherently disrupt the system, but it won't be painless way of disrupting the system. And I would much prefer uh, a world of peace and harmony, he says naively, where actually we collectively agree to effectively reformulate the rules of the market in a way that embeds public goods 
in a way that they aren't at the moment. So recognises the value of natural capital, recognises the public goods that underpin us being able to have a calm and stable and peaceful life and changes the rules of the market so that uh, market actors can make their profit whilst not degrading natural environment or not degrading people's health in the name of private profit. And already life expectancy in America, in Britain, going down. <laughs> going down quite quite rapidly from an actuarial perspective. It's it's quite quite a significant event. Um, so I want to go back a little bit to 1.5 degrees, net mm-hmm. zero, Paris alignment, and all the other objectives that many many in the investment industry claim to be aligned with, but we seem to the real world seems to be going in the opposite direction. And I was you know, a key part of achieving a net zero world seems to be this concept of innovation. I think it's nearly half of the expected achievement of net zero comes from things that will exist in the future that don't um, exist today. You, you obviously think that's good, that, that's a, a dangerous assumption that innovation is going to solve the you know, the problem. Should we be moving away now then in our thinking from mitigation to adaptation when we're considering climate? Again, two, two questions wrapped up in that. Innovation is hugely important and whatever we do, we need to innovate. But innovation in the sense of we have a limiting factor and that is the efficiency of supply, therefore our innovation is always on the supply side, is the dangerous assumption, I think. Uh, in the sense that we can also innovate on the demand side. Um, But, of course, that runs into the issue, how do you make more profit from selling less or consuming less in the broad sense? Um, I do think there is a huge danger, because of the non-linearity of climate change, there's a huge danger that something like CCUS or BECS will just not scale in the way that we would need it to, And the surest way of reaching net zero is to reduce our emissions, not to wait 30, 40 years for something that might not deploy deploy at the speed that it's needed to suck the emissions out of the atmosphere. And yet, almost all, as you say, almost all of our bets are on technology rather than broadly changing the demand side changing the rules of the market to encourage people to consume less or consume differently. Um, And that, to me, is worrying because the reason we have a 1.5 target instead of a 2 target, 2 degree target, is that there's uh, good evidence that between 1.5 and 2 degrees, the Earth system, primarily climate, will pass tipping points, which will be irreversible. And Some of those tipping points include uh, the overturning circulation, which effectively drives heat from the equator up to our nice maritime climate, or the irreversible melting of the uh, ice sheets, which will then lock us into 7, 10, 50 50 metres of climate change over the next few hundred years, the loss of the Amazonian forests and it converting to uh, savannah, the dieback of... Uh, most coral reefs in the world, which is would be not itself, uh, well, which itself would be a significant loss to to our our well being, 
I grew up on watching Jacques Cousteau and things like that. Exploring. Well. <laughs> uh, but the coral reefs form the nursery for many fisheries, and so it would have a huge impact on people's li- livelihoods. So going past 1.5 degrees in the hope that we can claw back emissions from the, the atmosphere with some technology that is still to be invented or still to be scaled up in a significant way poses itself a, a huge risk to our economic growth model in the long run. And it poses another risk in that it keeps perpetuating the production of the emissions in the first place. You, know, yeah. I mean, you have to even ask where, where the emissions go and what their use is. If they're stored safely, that's one thing. If they're used to extract more shale gas then that's a completely different outcome. But one last question before we wrap up. Um, we ask all this of all our guests. In less than a couple of minutes, you know, bull and bear, sorry for the stock market <laughs> jargon, but you know where I'm going. Uh, so what's one thing that you're optimistic about? I think we have talked a lot about some, some of the, the chat challenges and pessimists, and then one thing that you are particularly pessimistic about. Well, I am immensely optimistic at our ability, technical, institutional innovation, personal innovation, to find the solutions. We are, as a species, we're immensely clever. Um, We can solve the challenges ahead. That's the optimism. The pessimism is that we choose not to, in the sense that we are too worried about continuing our existing economic model for those that benefit from it, those that hold the power to change it, that we will not embrace the changes that we need to make at the pace we need to make them until it's too late, in which case the system will have broken. We will have all lost out, but we will be in a situation where actually it might be quite a painful transition to get to the other side. I often characterise the investment markets as the collision between human nature, which is immutable with human endeavour, which is that process of adaptation through innovation, and the ebbs and flows and the tensions between those. So let's hope that the optimistic side, (laughs) because we all need hope. Hope springs eternal. Tim, thank you very much for your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about our investment opportunities at Johambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for Johambro in your favourite browser.